Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Today I want to talk about what I call a just peace in the Middle East. And maybe uh, often you hear about peace in the Middle East, but the word just is not included in there. And so I wanted to make sure to include it because, as we all know, if there isn't a, a just resolution to a problem, in the long term, it's going to come back to haunt you. And we've seen that throughout history in many, many places, in the Balkans, in East Asia, in, in Africa, in many places. And so what I'm going to talk about today is what are the prospects for a real just resolution that gives both parties um, equal opportunities for future, but acknowledgement of their past as well. Um, let me start by uh, enumerating, in my opinion, what the root causes for this conflict are. And to me, they're really three. The land. So the obvious dispute is about the land. Who gets to own the land? Who gets to establish a state where? What are the boundaries of the state? Who has the right to settle where? Etc. So in the face of it, it's all about land. But behind that, there's the people, the Israeli Jews, Jews in the world, Palestinians, Arabs, all different people that inhabit that land or that have a link to it. To me, the most important one, and what's behind the two obvious reasons, root causes of the land and the people, is the ideologies that are conflicting on what to do in that region of the world. So I will try to go through these three aspects and then sort of outline what many others have said should be resolutions of this conflict, different types of solutions, and then I will chime in with my opinion. So the issue of the land is a very, very difficult one because we're not talking about any land here, right? We're talking about a land of um, a lot of significance historically, religiously, and in terms of a, a very strategic region in the world. So if you put together the issues of this land being sacred to the three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. If you put together that it's at the crossroads in, in the middle of the Middle East, at the heart of the Middle East, which is a strategic region, has always been, but with the uh, importance of oil in our world, it has become even more so. It, it becomes very important to talk about this land in a, in a bit more nuanced way than talking about any other piece of land in the world. Um, in here you see a picture of Jerusalem very, from very far away. I actually took this picture about three years ago. I was staying at a hotel in, um, in East Jerusalem and had a magnificent view. You go out and this is the view you saw. And it sort of gives you perspective of, of the, looking at the city from a distance because it, it's an, a unique city. Maybe some of you will consider it beautiful, some not. I love it. Uh, but regardless of... Um, you know, aesthetic beauty, it is very difficult for anybody to go to Jerusalem and not be touched. I am not a um, um, particularly religious person. In fact, I, I'm much less religious than most in this world. Um, but even I, uh, when I went to Jerusalem, I, I couldn't help but just feel the history. You feel the burden of the history and also the inspiration of history there. So it's a very important aspect. And as we will see later, Jerusalem is a, is a major part of this conflict and how to resolve it. But before starting about the land, I wanted to give you a little bit of where I come from. 
so that you know where I come from, because I think every speaker should tell you what their biases are, where they come from, because it colors what they see and colors how they think. This is a picture of my village, which is just outside of Ramallah in Palestine. And um, I took it from an olive tree. So we have olive orchards that have been in my family for many, many generations. And the village itself is a very ancient village. In fact, the house that that we own in that village is a 900-year-old house. It was a Roman-style house, so from the time of the Romans. And, of course, the olive trees were introduced by the Romans in Palestine. So that's how old they are. And in particular, we have an olive tree in, in our orchard. We don't know exactly the age of it, but it's at least a few hundred years old. Very, very old olive tree, as you can tell. But it gives still the best olives. It's really really a remarkable tree. Um, So my attachment to the land is not just ideological, right? It's physical. I have family there. I live there. I have attachments there. I actually own land there. So it's a pretty important attachment to me. So it's not just conceptual or ideological, which is important, but it's also important to understand the physical link. So on the way to my village from Ramallah, which is about a um, 15-minute drive on normal days, it could go on for two hours if there's a checkpoint preventing you, um, there is a settlement. So this is a Jewish settlement that was probably built in the early 70s. You can tell the different settlements their age from the different styles of housing that they had. And this is right on the main road from Ramallah to, the, um, to my village, which is called Der Ghassane. Now, settlements are for Jews only. So they're Jewish settlements. They're not communities where anybody can purchase land or own a house or anything. They're intentionally to settle Jews that have either immigrated um, recently to Israel or they, they want to go to the West Bank. And often the government offers all kinds of economic incentives. The prices of houses and settlements is half of what it is in the rest of Israel. And there are all kinds of incentives to own in these settlements. Um, but all the roads leading to the settlements, all the surrounding area is, is locked off. So Palestinians cannot enter it. So it's, it's only for Jews. Um, this issue of settlements, to us in the U.S., maybe. A remote issue or maybe a political issue, but to Palestinians, it's a physical issue. It's, it's somebody that has come to their neighborhood and settled a land in which they cannot enter anymore. Right? So, it's, so I want you to understand why this issue of settlements keeps coming back up in political discussions. Of course, most importantly to Palestinians, it came up in uh, President Barack Obama's historic speech in Cairo uh, last year in June. The reason I call it historic is because if you really listen to the speech, and I did, and and you went through the items, so beyond, you know, the politics and, and showmanship and all that, he really addressed very fundamental issues that no other U.S. president did before him in terms of understanding what it means to be Palestinian. So he acknowledged that. And that already was you know, uh, decades ahead of, for example, George Bush's um, discourse about the topic, which was much more remote, much more political, much more about power. And for Barack Obama to acknowledge to Palestinians that he understands their misery was a huge step forward, in my opinion, in resolving this issue. But one of the things that he said in that speech was really reiterate was nothing new it's reiterating the official US policy since 1967 
which is that the United States does not accept the legitimacy of continued Israeli settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories. This construction violates previous agreements and undermines efforts to achieve peace. It is time for these settlements to stop. In his interviews, he, he went on to, and, and Hillary Clinton did too, to say that as a first step, they wanted Israel to freeze all settlement activity. And the reason is very simple. If you are discussing a resolution to an issue in which land is a, is a crucial component, as I discussed, you can't allow one of the parties to be changing the land. So if you have a dispute in, an, in a project in San Diego, building has to stop until the dispute is resolved. You can't allow a developer to keep building if residents are suing the developers. And so um, it, is, it is really important to understand that point. But they went further and said it's not only that they have to freeze, but actually they're all illegal. So we have to find a way to resolve these settlements. Um, and, and it is important to understand, as I will demonstrate, that there is no resolution of this conflict if this issue is not dealt with. There, there can never be. This is like establishing a Palestinian state in Manhattan, in New York, but without 42nd Street and 72nd Street and 23rd Street and 14th Street. Anybody who lived in New York understands there is no Manhattan if you cut, cut it into those major, major avenues and, and streets. And that's what those settlements did to the West Bank. It carved them up into pieces that are not connected, as we will see in some of the maps. So... I want you to put yourself, and sometimes it's very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of the other, but imagine that you are Palestinian for a second. So you lived in the Middle East, regardless of what your history is, where you come from. We don't really know where anybody comes from really, really, really 30,000 years ago, right? So we have a notion of history that we think is ancient that's five, 6,000 years ago, but that's not ancient. We've been on this earth much longer than that. So the issue of history we can discuss and debate, but the issue of physical existence is, is here. It's concrete. So in 1948, you had nothing to do with World War II. You had nothing to do with the German Holocaust. You had nothing to do with the pogroms in Russia before that. You had nothing to do with the persecution of Jews in Europe. And yet, there was a movement that was launched in Europe, as I will come to later on, that wanted to settle Jews in your land because of historical links. And so in 1948, 46, 47, 48, this is what the picture looked like. All the green areas were owned by Palestinians, inhabited, populated by Palestinians. And the white areas were Jewish um, immigrants that had been immigrating to Palestine from the beginning of the 20th century to that point lived. So they established cities like Tel Aviv, they established you know, other communities, kibbutzes, and so on. And that's where they all were, so mostly on the coast and the Galilee. By 1947, of course, the United Nations partitioned the land. So they had a proposal to partition Palestine into two states, one Jewish, one Arab, and they insisted on, on keeping the municipality of Jerusalem as under international jurisdiction. So the proposal, the, the partition plan of 1947 was really three entities, two states and an international open city. That, those were the parameters. The, the Jewish state got about 55% of the land, and the Palestinian state or the Arab state got 45% of the land. 
war erupted. We can talk about the causes for war and who caused it and what happened and all that. By the end of 1949, there was an armistice agreement that was signed by the parties, and the result of it was the third picture. So Israel actually occupied an additional area, and now only 23% of historic Palestine by 1949 was left to the Palestinians or to establish something for the Palestinians. Of course, the Palestinian state never was established, and, and, and life went on without that. In the current day, it's actually worse than the last picture, but this is the last map that is an official map. This is what the situation looks like. So Israel controls pretty much about 83%, 84% of the land, and the Palestinians have ownership or control of very small areas, which you can see in the last picture. So if you're a Palestinian in the last half of, this, of the 20th century, you had seen your land. And remember, land in our narrative means our villages, our olive orchards, our trees, our land. You know, mostly it was an agricultural society. So land is even more important than an industrial society, where people can move as long as they have their businesses and economy, they're fine. Farmers land is, is it. So you've seen all that happen. So you have to take that into account when thinking of why Palestinians behave the, the way they do, why violence erupts, and how to resolve this. It's difficult to do that, but you have to be able to do that. Just like in the United States, you had to be able to think of U.S. history from the point of view of African Americans to get to civil liberties for African Americans and to get to the civil rights movement. If you kept imagining history only as a European settler, it looks very different than if you were an African slave or a Native American. But to really resolve issues, you have to be able to transcend those boundaries. So this is what it looks like, pretty grim. I mean, the only way, if, if this happened to any other people, we would all have one definition of it, land theft. These people lost their land. Gradually, but surely, right? Um, another issue that is very important is that this didn't happen as a natural phenomenon with people increasing in size and taking over. It was an intentional policy of politics and settlement and so on. And the most egregious aspect of that is the wall that Israel has been building on the West Bank which Israel calls its security fence. And as I'll, I'll show you in the picture, this doesn't look like a fence. It's a huge, enormous wall with watchtowers every 100 meters or so that is fully armed people. It's not, it's not a fence. It's a wall. Now, the issue about the wall, Israel says it's for security, for protecting Israeli citizens. If that were the case, why didn't Israel build it on undisputed territory that is in Israel? to protect its citizens. Instead, all of the wall is pretty much built on the West Bank within Palestinian territories, so post-1967. And as you can see, in some areas, it goes really deep in the West Bank. And some of this may not look that interesting to you, but some areas like here, what the result of building the wall is really separating a city like Jenin or like Tulkarem, from all of its lands. So the city is inside, and all of its lands are outside. So if you live in that city, usually what people do, Palestinians have houses in the city, and all their lands are about five miles away 
that's their orchards and, and farmlands and so on. The wall is in the middle. They cannot get to their lands. Now, that area is the most fertile area of the West Bank, and it produces a significant portion of the agricultural output. That includes, you know, olives, of course, but it includes um, uh, citrus, it includes uh, fruit and flowers and a lot of things. And that is now systematically being destroyed. This situation was brought up by Palestinians in front of the International Court of Justice. Now, in the United States, it's sometimes difficult to talk about the International Court of Justice because the United States does not recognize the authority of the International Court of Justice because the U.S. always maintains that it cannot allow anybody else to uh, accuse any of its leaders of war crimes or things like that and persecute them, right? And so um, it, it's a troublesome relationship. For the rest of the world, it's, it's obvious. You know, all of Europe, everybody agrees that the International Court of Justice is the highest uh, legal authority in the world. So on July 4, on the July 9, 2004, the court basically, there's the whole um, advisory opinion, but it basically says this wall is illegal because it was constructed on land that was occupied by force in 1967, and it's not Israel's land, right? So nobody in the world, including the U.S., recognizes the West Bank as belonging to Israel. It's occupied territory. And building this wall prevents the resolution of that conflict which the UN wants to resolve, so it's illegal. And not only that, anything that Israel did, because uh, any harm that was done because of the wall has to be reversed, and Israel has to pay compensation for all the damages that this wall has caused. Right? And those damages, they go on to enumerate economic damage, environmental damage, all, all kinds of damages, not just... Um, so this ruling makes it very... Um, obvious and very uh, black and white in terms of international law where it stands, in addition to the international law aspects of settlements. So now you have two huge components that have been condemned by the international community. And the U.S., by the way, sits on this court. So the U.S. judge abstained. If he didn't abstain, this would have been an enforceable opinion. But he was the only judge that abstained from all the judges in the world. And, um, but he didn't vote no, because he could have voted no to make this not uh, go through. Um, they found settlements are illegal under international law, and so is the wall. And those two components are the two major components that make the land issue almost unsolvable. It's impossible. So you have to think, if the U.S. opposes at least on paper, that's what the U.S. position is, settlements and any changes on the land that would prevent an outcome of the resolution. Why has the U.S. not been able to do anything? More than that, the U.S. has really in the last 30 years funded this occupation. The U.S. has given Israel more than $3 billion a year, more than any other country in the world. In some years, Israel got more money than the entire continent of Africa. And when you put this in the context of Israel being a rich country, which, whose GDP per capita is equivalent to that of Spain, it doesn't make any sense why Israel should be getting any aid from the U.S. It's a rich country. It's a very rich country, okay, by any standard. And, and yet it gets this U.S. aid, and it gets the most advanced U.S. weapons that even Britain cannot get. So Israel is the only country outside the U.S. that has access to the most advanced U.S. weapons that even NATO allies do not get. 
So you have to wonder, if the U.S. really wanted to change the situation, why is it doing that? Well, I'm not going to go into it in depth. Maybe in the second half, in questions and answers, I, I could go into it. But it's very complicated. But what's clear is that maybe the, is the U.S. Um, ruling powers really do not want to resolve this issue. That's one possibility. That's unlikely, because it's really causing a lot of harm to the U.S., right? The U.S. would be in a much better shape in the world if this issue was resolved. There would be less contention. It won't resolve everything, but it would be less contention. The other, the other um, aspect of this, well, what the, the lobby, the pro-Israel lobby in the U.S. has done in a very masterful way, which is use the U.S. system of governance that we have that allows for lobbying, actually to the max. And they don't lobby on all issues. They just lobby on this issue. So for 30 years, they've been really building up political power only on this issue so that basically, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or a, or a Republican or an independent, as Nancy Pelosi said about four weeks ago when she met with Netanyahu together with the head of the Republican minority leaders in the Senate, we agree on this. This is the only issue that we Democrats and Republicans agree on. And she was talking this in front of Netanyahu, who's not exactly a dove in Israeli politics, right-wing government of the worst kind, many people would say, in Israel today. And you have to say, why is that? I mean, those people don't agree on anything. They always fight. And I think that the, the pro-Israel lobby has been able to effect influence on the political machine in the U.S. on this issue. They don't run the world. They only run this issue. So it's extremely difficult in the U.S. to have a senator or a congressperson come out and be even, not even pro-Palestinian, even. It's very difficult. It's almost like political suicide. Okay. It's changing. It's changing now. There's another Jewish lobby called J Street now that is challenging APAC, and it has very different opinions. It actually wants a two-state solution. It wants a different outcome than APAC. And things are changing. It will take time. But one has, has to um, acknowledge this. Now, if you read Hebrew and you read the Israeli press, this is no secret. It's all over Israeli press every day, right? It's, it's, it's only you know, a taboo or semi-taboo subject in the U.S. It's not in Israel. Everybody knows that in Israel. So this is a joke that uh, Israeli uh, journalist Akiva Elder tells that, you know, the Prime Minister of Israel meets the President of the U.S. and he said, um, President of the U.S. said, Mr. Prime Minister, would Israel like to be the 51st state? And the Prime Minister says, no, thanks, Mr. President. Why not? Well, if we become a state, we'll only have two senators. Israel has much more support than two senators. I mean, this is an issue that there's universal agreement on. Um, now, this is not, has not always been the case. So I'll take you back in history to 1956, where the world was a bit different. Back then, um, Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, nationalized the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is a very important, it's like the Panama Canal, in the middle of Egyptian territory, but it has been owned by an international company, at that point. And most of the revenues didn't go to Egypt. So like many other socialist-oriented governments around the world, he nationalized the Suez Canal. This made France and Britain pretty angry because they were getting revenues from the Suez Canal. And they launched a war on Egypt. And Israel joined them. The three countries basically occupied the Sinai and took over the Suez Canal. And uh, they did that in a very uh, – there was no warning, nothing. They just bombed and went in in a day. 
At that time, the U.S. position was quite different than today. Eisenhower was very, very angered by this action. I don't know why. Maybe because he wasn't consulted. And how dare France and Britain, you know, two ex-empires, not consult the president of the new empire that was emerging after World War II. But anyway, after a long... I won't go take you through the whole story, but Eisenhower basically ordered Israel to withdraw and France and Britain. And they didn't for a while. He, then he threatened. Then France and Britain withdrew. So France and Britain said, OK, we're done, went, went out. Israel was still in occupation of parts of the Sinai and the Gaza Strip. So Eisenhower said, not good. Israel has to withdraw too. Ben-Gurion was the prime minister of Israel at that time. He refused. This went on for four months. And the U.S. kept escalating. Instead of clamping down, like we see happening today, as, as I will talk about later, the U.S. escalated. And Eisenhower actually, on 20th of February, 1957, took it to the American people. He had a televised event. I wasn't born back then. I don't know if any of you remember this. But it was a fateful moment, you know, with Eisenhower talking to the American people. And he said, we are now faced with a face, fateful moment. And in this speech, there is a long speech. He gives a very um, logical explanation of why this cannot be allowed to go on. It undermines the United Nations and undermines legitimacy of what we've been trying to build after World War II and so on. But he says this statement, if I were to lend the infl I wouldn't be true to the standards of the high office of the U.S., if I were to lend to the influence of the United States to the proposition that a nation which invades another should be permitted to exact conditions for withdrawal, i.e., if a country occupies another and it's an illegal under international law, it has to withdraw without conditions. That was the U.S. position back then. We're living in a different world today, um, but it still holds. Nobody has changed this doctrine because these types of things take, you know, a lot, a lot of time to, to change. So this is the official U.S. position. The U.S. does not accept that a country occupies another by force and then maintains that occupation. Now, the U.S. does it, but then we always withdraw, right? I mean, so we can bomb Iraq and withdraw, bomb Vietnam and withdraw and bomb. We never hold on to territories that we occupy. And so the issue of occupying the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem it is a huge issue. It's not going to go away. The U.S. cannot just accept it, because if it does that, it will be destroying the international world order, which was established after World War II to exactly prevent the occurrences of a Nazi Germany occupying Poland and then staying there and saying, now it's mine. We can't allow that, even if it's an ally. So that's, there's complications there. And in the end, when after this televised Edition, Eisenhower actually threatened to sanction Israel. And he said, I'm not going to only sanction Israel, but I'm going to sanction companies that do business with Israel. That's what he, it was very, very strong. Two days later, Ben-Gurion said, okay, we're done. Withdrew. It didn't take two days, right? Um, even the Israelis withdrew from most of the Gaza Strip, kept the peace, and Eisenhower said, no, all of it. So that episode proved that if the United States really wanted something accomplished, it could. Now I'm not sure, because of the, the politics, internal politics of the United States, the power of the lobby, and different forces in the U.S. that now you know, question this whole international law legitimacy. So just to conclude, 
Um, on the land issue, so that's one issue, and that's the biggest issue. The other issues will, will be sh- faster. Is that Israel de facto today controls all of the land between the Mediterranean and the River Jordan, either directly by having Israel as a state or indirectly by having military occupation of the West Bank or in, indirectly as having a siege on Gaza. The, the, the result is Palestinians have no control, no actual control of any piece of the land. The only thing they can do is maybe farm part of it and collect garbage and do things like that. They have no border control, no airspace control, no economic control. They cannot import and export. Not, none of the things that you associate with sovereignty. Um, the land in, in post-1967 areas, the occupied areas, have been carved beyond recognition now with settlements and the wall. It's really physical. If you go visit there, it will take you 10 minutes to see it on the ground. The Israelis have always called this facts on the ground. And that's what they are. They're facts on the ground. You cannot ignore them, right? And if you really go there, one cannot imagine how a Palestinian state of any sovereignty can exist there. It's very difficult to imagine. So I'll leave you with that conclusion and go on to the next issue, ideology. The ideology issue is very important and very difficult because, let's face it, as as much as we say we're objective, each one of us has some ideological influences. It could be religion. It could be uh, social justice. It could be liberalism. It could be conservatism, whatever it is. They, They color who we are. And in this issue, the most two important ideologies are Zionism and Palestinian nationalism. So I'll go through them very quickly. Um, I'm not going to give you a history lesson about Zionism or anything like that, just to say that the crucial thing that I want to leave you with is Zionism was a European Jewish ideology. It was not invented or coined or thought of by Sephardic Jews, by Jews of the Middle East or Jews of the Islamic world or Jews of Spain. It was thought up and formulated by Central European Jews Right, that lived in Germany, in Austria, in France, in, in Poland, that was the milieu that shaped Zionism. So to me, it's a continuation of the thinking of European nation-state. Right? So nation-states in Europe, you know, Germany being unified, Italy being unified, the formation of states in Europe, which started a couple of centuries ago, culminated in the 19th century, and all these countries became independent. Then what evolved in Europe was ethnocentricity. So Italians thinking they're better than anybody else, Germans thinking they're better than anybody else, the French, and so on. You had ethnocentric states evolving, and within those states there was a trend of not tolerating the other. And we all know the consequences of that in Germany, right? So, so that notion of ethnocentricity, or being obsessed with ethnicity, and purity of an ethnic race was very much a European phenomenon in the first half of the 20th century. And we had two world wars about that that cost 60 million people in the world. Zionism grew in that context. And so if you look at Zionism, you will see on one aspect the national liberation aspects of it, that the Jews are a nation like any other. They deserve to have a state like any other, a homeland with liberation and authority and all that to protect them and all that. But there's also the ethnocentric aspects of it. It's Jews are different than anybody else. So their state has to be a Jewish state, not a multicultural state, not a, you know. That was very much the trend in Europe, and it carried through 
to Zionism. So the major thing, though, in Zionism is before the Holocaust, it was really not accepted by the majority of Jews in the world. Most Jews up to that point still really fought for integration, assimilation, in Germany, in, in the UK, in France, everywhere. They were part and parcel of the whole intellectual movement for liberation and socialism and social justice and everything. The Holocaust and before that, the pogroms in Russia changed all that. And a lot of Jews started fearing for their lives. And they thought of Zionism as a liberation theology for them. And um, it gained a lot of momentum. Of course, by the partition plan, it had gained international legitimacy. But before then, Britain and the U.S., there was always a trend in support of Zionism, unlike most other countries. So you won't really find in France or Italy or something people who think of themselves as Zionists or not Jewish, but you do find that in Britain and the U.S. So in the U.S., there's a trend of Christian fundamentalist churches that believe in Zionism. Of course, if you really take it to the logical conclusion, they believe in Zionism because they want all the Jews to go back to the land of Israel so that they can all be killed and the Messiah can come down. Not very, very good uh, conclusion. A lot of them believe in that. Armageddon, okay? Armageddon is going to happen because of that. Uh, but there is that feeling that they believe in the Old Testament and the Old Testament, this, the, and this is the land of Israel and so on and so forth. And in Britain, to some extent, even among British elites, but not in many other countries in the world. Now, the, the, the issue of Zionism is after the establishment of the state of Israel, it became state ideology, just like communism in, in the Soviet Union or communism in Russia, in uh, China. It, it became a state ideology. And like in all these other countries, as I can talk to you in questions and answers, that ideology is losing its luster. So the young generation in Israel doesn't really care much about ideology or Zionism. They care much more about economic development and starting their own companies and becoming rich, and like everywhere else in the world, much more. So there is a generational gap there. The second ideology is Palestinian nationalism. This ideology has very different roots. So it grew from within the context of national liberation of third world countries. So countries around the third world that were colonized mostly by Britain and France wanting to become independent. That was happening all over the world, in India, in, the, in Africa, and it was happening in the Middle East. Within that, there was an, a pan-Arab movement that said the Arab world, 300 million now, but before then it was 100 million, the, we all speak Arabic, we all have common history, we all have common culture, we should be unified. Right? It's sort of like the European Union idea, but even stronger because they all speak the same language. That movement became the dominant movement in the first half of the 20th century in the Arab world. So Palestinian nationalism was only part of that. They're saying we're Palestinians, but we're Arabs. So Arab was more important. Sort of like saying we're European first, then French, or European first, then German. But after the defeat of 1967... So President Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt represented Arab nationalism. He was the hero of Arab nationalism. He was defeated in 1967. So different Arabs start saying, well, maybe this idea doesn't work, each for his own in some ways. And Palestinian nationalism emerged as basically saying, the Arabs are not going to liberate our country. We have to do it our own way. So the PLO emerged as representing just the idea of Palestinian liberation, like getting back the homeland, as I showed you in the map, that's how Palestinians feel. They've been losing their land. They want to get it back. And the PLO 
first, you know, had armed struggle against Israel, did not want to negotiate. In 1973, it was recognized by the United Nations, and then it became a more political movement. By 1987-88, the PLO had accepted the two-state solution, and we'll talk about that later. And of course, in 1993, uh, even before then, it recognized Israel, signed a peace treaty with Israel. So Rabin and Arafat shook hands in the White House, is the famous uh, picture. And, um, and then they went on to lead the Palestinian people. That didn't result in anything. So from 1993 to 2005, Palestinians lost even more land. And nothing really positive happened. Their economy went down. The poverty went up. So in spite of all the rhetoric, their situation became worse. That gave rise to much more popularity of the Islamic resistance, Hamas. And um, I'm not going to talk much about Hamas in this. I'll be happy to answer questions. Uh, but that's sort of how Palestinian nationalism evolved. Um, one thing that we have to understand in ideology is the terms. You know, the terms are always used in certain ways to promote something, demonize something, and so on. So a couple of things I just want to focus on. The term apartheid. The term apartheid comes from an Afrikaans word, South African whites, meaning apart, apartedness, living apart, segregation. It's really, that's the meaning of it. In 1973, the United Nations made apartheid a crime against humanity. And they defined apartheid not as the system South Africa, but they defined it as any system. I have the definition here, actually. Um, any, uh, com it's a crime against humanity committed in the context of any institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining the regime. So they said anybody that practices that is practicing apartheid and it's against international law and it's a crime against humanity. Now, if we really look at the system that exists today in historic Palestine between the Mediterranean and the River Jordan, we will see that inside Israel itself, so Israel is one of the few countries, I'm not sure if it's the only country or one of the few countries, that has two notions, citizenship and nationality. So people can become citizens until 1966, nobody but Jews can become citizens. But after 1966, they, they changed the law, and Palestinians living in Israel could become citizens. But they cannot become nationals, because it's a Jewish nation, and only Jews can become nationals. And in fact, non-citizens can be nationals. So any Jew in the world is a national of the state of Israel. At any minute, they can get citizenship and have full rights, because they belong to the Jewish nation. Um, whereas Palestinians can become citizens but never nationals. What, does, what differences make? Because only nationals can own land in most of Israel because most of the land of Israel is owned by the Jewish National Fund and the Israel Land Authority, which came out of it, and it, can, it does not have the right According to the national, the Jewish National Fund was established to have lands owned by Jews. That was the purpose of it. And so they cannot sell lands to non-Palestinians. This decision has been challenged over and over and over again in the U.S. Supreme Court with very limited success, a couple of cases. But till now, a Palestinian cannot own land in about 93% of Israel. This is Israel proper. Okay. Then you take the 1967 areas. And there you have 
military occupation over Palestinians. They don't even have citizenship. They don't have no. They have no rights to economy, to land ownership, to travel, to anything. Cannot set up their businesses without going through Israel. Everything has to go through Israeli authorities. And there's about 450,000 Jewish settlers that are nationals and citizens, and they have full rights. So any of those settlers can take the Jews-only road, so the roads that only Jewish settlers can travel on, to go in the middle of Israel within 10 minutes or 15 minutes and work, normal work, you know, everything. That's a situation of severe inequality. So... You make your own judgment. I think there's no debate that it's apartheid because that's what it means. One group is dominating the other and is establishing all kinds of things to continue that domination for a long, long time. That's what apartheid means. So, um, and I'll tell you later what Desmond Tutu and Mandela, that's not what I call it. It's Desmond Tutu and Mandela call it apartheid in Israel. And so... Um, here are the fundamental questions that everybody should ask themselves, really, really, really fundamentally. Are Israeli Jews and Palestinians equal in every sense of the word? Do national rights apply equally to both? Do economic and cultural rights apply equally to both? Can there ever be a Jewish state on a land that for centuries has had a non-Jewish majority? Regardless if you believe in the Bible or not, the fact is for 2,000 years, there were non-Jews living on that land, and they were the majority for 2,000 years. That's six times the life of the U.S. They're living there physically, cultivating land, everything. And shouldn't multiculturalism, secularism, liberty for all, civil rights, law, everybody under the same law, shouldn't these concepts that we value so much in this country that I'm, I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, value and, and fight for in this country. Why wouldn't those notions be applicable there? So, so these are the questions, fundamental questions, that you have to ask yourself and be honest with yourself. If, now, if you answer to these questions honestly, there can be a resolution. There are always people who oppose certain things. Finally, the people... Edward Said, the late Palestinian-American professor from Columbia University, um, had said one phrase. He said, the Palestinians are the victims of the victims. That's what they are. They're the victims of the Jews, and the Jews were the victims of Europe and the world. I mean, the Jews were the victims. And so all the notions of Holocaust, victimization, we're seeing... Images that are reminiscent of them. I'm not saying that what's happening to the Palestinians is a Holocaust by any measure. But it, it's, it's, there are certain images that even Israelis have been so troubled by. And they said, come on, doesn't this look like Auschwitz? Doesn't this look like, you know, uh, it's, it's very troubling. I think the last straw for most of the world, maybe not the U.S. yet, was the Gaza war. Um, begin, be, last year, so from December 27, 2008, till January 2009. In that war, most of the world saw an incredibly aggressive Israel using the most sophisticated weapons known to human beings, using those weapons in the most densely populated area in the world, 
The only conclusion is they're killing civilians, regardless of the... Now, in the U.S., we saw a bit of a different picture, and the conclusions were different. But I guarantee you, if you go anywhere else in the world, that was the conclusion. And that has started a whole action campaign to isolate Israel, to try to sanction, divest it. That's gaining a lot of popularity outside the U.S., and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, in his speech in 2009, and the reason I said earlier that I call it historic is because Barack Obama uttered these, these words for more than 60 years. He didn't say just the occupation of the West Bank. He said, since the establishment of the state of Israel for more than 60 years, the Palestinian people has endured the pain of dislocation and the daily humiliations, large and small, that come with occupation. Let there be no doubt the situation for the Palestinian people is intolerable. And America will not turn our backs on the legitimate Palestinian aspirations for dignity, opportunity, and a state of their own. Israel must live up to its obligation to ensure that Palestinians can live and work and develop their society. Those words have never been uttered by any other American president. Other words, similar, but not that deep. And so my conclusion is things may be changing here. It, it's too much injustice, too much inequality, too much discrepancy for too long that the situation is intolerable and it's now affecting the rest of the world. Um, so the conclusion, and you can reach your own conclusion, but you'll have to prove it to me with data, that Israelis, Israeli Jews and Palestinians who live on the same land live extremely unequal existence. Much worse than, let's say, uh, the difference between African-Americans and white Americans in the U.S., or Latinos and white Americans in the U.S., much, much, much worse, okay? It's a situation very reminiscent of the pre-civil rights era of complete segregation, enormous differences in economy. So Israel, GDP per capita is equal to that of Spain. Rich people, they, they live very well, Israeli Jews. Palestinians, more like Bangladesh, that's the reality. You go, you see it for yourself. Um, Israeli Jews are completely free. They live in a free country. They can travel anywhere they want. They don't need a visa to the U.S. or most of Europe. They can set up their businesses. And in fact, Israel has the highest per capita startup companies in the whole world. So it's, it's prosperous. It's flourishing, right? They establish high-tech companies, and they influence the world in, with technology, with thought, ideas, and so on. Great achievements. Palestinians are not allowed now, if people say, again, you have to check your racism, because we're all racist until we fight it. Many of you may think, well, it's the Palestinians' fault. And I'm sure many whites think it's the blacks' fault, and it's always somebody else's fault. That may be part of it. But you have to also say, Palestinians flourished in other countries in the world. When they went to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, they built countries there. And they built uh, Jordan and so on. So it's, uh, Palestinian people is capable of great success. So their, their misery is not coincidental. It's not because of just their own failures. Like any people, they have their own failures. But there's something that's pushing them down, okay? So you have to, uh, to acknowledge this. Um, the, major, the major thing is they lost their land. They lost their land. They have no control over their land. That's indisputable. You cannot dispute that fact. You can justify it. You cannot dispute it, okay? If you believe that God gave somebody the land, that's your business, the rest of the world doesn't believe that because we live in a world where there are many, many religions, where many, if we start believing what some sacred texts tell us, we're in trouble. 
because some other sacred text can tell us different things. And hopefully what we've learned from experience in the rich countries of the world is separating church from state is a great idea. You can believe whatever you want to believe in, but you cannot force other people to live by that belief. Okay? Major things. However, in spite of all this prosperity and richness of Israel, Israeli Jews still feel very, very insecure. They are attacked. They don't live in security. They live in fear. So in spite of all this success, Zionism has yet not achieved its aim of a safe, secure haven for Jews. Jews are much more safe in New York City than Israel. That's just a fact. And so one has to step back and look at all these things. Very quickly, I don't have much time. I'm running out of time. So I will go through three major solutions that have been proposed. Not by me. If you read Jimmy Carter's book, Palestine, Peace or Apartheid, he, he, he concludes that. Look, don't diss people. This was the president of the U.S., an uninterested party. He's not Palestinian, he's not Jewish, he has not, no axe to grind. He was the president of the United States. You may, don't have to agree with him, but he's not an idiot. He's seen a lot, he's heard a lot, he has a lot of inside information, right? His conclusion was there's three options. Either a two-state solution, which seems to be the favorite option of the world. To have two states, Israel and Palestine, equal, you know, equal security, borders, and so on. In general, everybody says they accept that. Everybody. PLO accepted that Israel has always said, oh, they want peace and they want this. In reality, it's dead. So you have to ask why. If somebody says they like something and then at the end of it, it's dead. That solution has not been able to be accomplished for 45 years, right? So your conclusion has to be that really people either didn't care that much about it or didn't want it. They just said they want it because it's international law, right? But in reality today, and, and I think everybody recognizes that now, there is no way to establish a two-state solution because there is no way to establish a Palestinian state. With 450,000 settlers, what do you do with them? Do they become Palestinian citizens? like Israeli, you know, Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. There are so, huge issues. Jerusalem, the right of Palestinians to return. So all the refugees that were kicked out in 1948, for whatever reason, it's under international law that every refugee, whether it's a Jew from Morocco or a Palestinian from Israel, has the right, if they want to, to return to their home or be compensated. That's international law. You may not like it, but it is international law, and it's a great law, because otherwise, all the Kosovars that were kicked by the Serbs wouldn't be able to go back, all the Bosnians, all the Rwandans, all the East Congolese, many, many, many tragedies around the world. Second, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Israelis say is the eternal capital of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Palestinians say, is the, is the capital of the Palestinian state. It's holy to everybody, big issue. Third issue, final borders. What are the borders of this? Is it 1967? Is it something else? Israel has never declared its borders as a state. It never declared its borders. No, there's nothing in Israel that says these are our borders. The borders are wherever the Israeli army exists. So it's an issue. And finally, the status of Palestinians inside Israel. Are they going to continue to be equal citizens or not? Do they have equal rights? Are they going to become nationals of the state or what? There's 1.3 million Palestinian Israeli citizens. So what do you do with them? The second option is forget all that. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the basics. 
what works in Europe, what works in the U.S., what works in Japan, what works in the rich countries, works everywhere else. Remove ethnocentricity. Become a diverse, multicultural, multireligious democracy. What a concept, right? The French and American revolutions, 300 years ago. I mean, it doesn't take rocket scientists to believe that that's a possibility. The people, yes, there. They, don't be racist. People there are like people everywhere. If they have the opportunity, they'll do it. We have many examples in the world with very, um, with ethnic, two or more ethnic minorities that hated each other, that unified in a country. Belgium. Switzerland. So, so we have terrific examples. The United Kingdom, Welsh and, and English and, and Scottish and, and so on. South Africa is the newest example, right? South Africa, it has a lot of problems, but it's going in the right direction. Where whites are now equal citizens, they're not gods anymore. They don't <laughs> enslave and control blacks, right? So, and they have many other countries of the reverse example, we see what happens with ethnocentricity. Breaking up of Yugoslavia, not exactly a very terrific example of what happened there. Breaking up of Armenia and Azerbaijan. I mean, millions of people died. Pakistan and India. Was that a great idea? I don't know. Okay? Now, I believe that people are people everywhere. Their context is different. It may take longer or shorter for people to reach same conclusions. Right? If you go, I travel to China all the time because my business is there. The 10 years of change in China convinced me that it can happen in the most populous country in the world. It can happen anywhere. The changes are enormous in a huge country like China. A tiny little country like Israel and Palestine, 10 million people. That, you can fit that in half of Beijing. There are not that many people. I know we think it's very important, and both Palestinians and Jews think there's nothing in the world but us. We're not that important. We should get our problem solved so that the world can get on with much more important business, right? We're just not that important. And, and, and I really believe that in both traditions, in the Jewish tradition and the, the Palestinian Arab tradition, there is enough um, diversity, enough multiculturalism, enough yearning for democracy to make this very possible. You know, Lebanon, with all of its problems, is a multicultural, multireligious country. It has gone through severe problems, but it survived as a country, and it still exists today as that. It's possible. The other option is to do nothing. And if you do nothing, the, the trend that's continuing of delegitimizing Israel will continue. That's how it started in South Africa. It will continue. There is no escaping the international law aspects. What exists today is apartheid. Many people will resist calling it that. In the end, a lot more people will be convinced because it's not that hard to convince them. They can take one trip and come back with that opinion. So the current reality, as Barack Obama said, is intolerable. It does not, it's not sustainable. So you have these options. What do you do? You keep existing as we are today. You solve two states. Or you, you, you get a much better reality. In my opinion, regardless of what you believe in, nothing can happen. Nothing can happen unless the two parties are equalized a little bit. Because whenever you have a super strong party and a super weak party, there is no incentive for solving the problem. 
It, it's, it's unsolvable. If you start equalizing this a little bit with international pressure, then the situation becomes maybe solvable. So I think what's happening in the world, and what I think is actually a good thing, even though many American Jews will feel it very threatening and painful, but I actually think it's a very good thing, and many Jews are recognizing that, is that pressuring Israel is good for Israel. Pressuring Israel is the only way to reduce its power so that it can negotiate. Palestinians are nothing already. They're so weak that they have nothing to negotiate about. They, are, they have no land. They, have, they don't really have any cards. The only card they have is legitimacy. Israel wants Palestinians to say, yes, we accept you. That's the only card Palestinians have. No other card, right? But they have international support. If that grows, then it will equalize Israel's power. Then you can negotiate. That's what happens in negotiations. And I think it's a very good thing that, that it, it agrees. Here are some quotes. You can read them at your own time. From Desmond Tutu, the hero of anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. He visited Israel and Palestine in 2002 and came back with unequivocal conclusions that he wrote in The Guardian of, of London, he wrote in the BBC, he wrote in the New York Times, he wrote everywhere. If you go back to the archives, you'll read them. He calls the situation apartheid, just like we had in South Africa. And he said, I don't understand how it's acceptable for Israeli Jews who have suffered so much in their history to live with this situation. That's what the, his words, not mine. Well, let's uh, thank our speaker. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.